Deep in the imagination, there's a crossroads, a space where curiosity and inspiration intersect and give birth to ideas. A space where music, science fiction, comic books, and pop culture inform the mind of what is and what could be. This is Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. In each episode, legendary journalist Jeff Boucher welcomes the biggest names in genre entertainment for an expansive dive into all things pop culture. Journey with Jeff as he explores the latest news and recommendations of the hottest releases across entertainment with his most trusted confidants. You are now entering deep space. Heavy Metal presents Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. Hi, this is Jeff Boucher. This is Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. And uh, I'm here with Maya St. Clair and Garrett Nickel. Hello, team. How are you guys? Good, Jeff. Hey. How about you? Doing well, thank you. Uh, today we have a, uh, a little bit of a departure for us. Uh, a lot of times our guests uh, are in science fiction or fantasy uh, or comics. Uh, this guest uh, today has certainly has achievements in those uh, areas, but she's best known, I think, for her stage productions and also for um, films like Across the Universe, Titus, um, Frida, uh, just so many amazing films. Uh, Julie Taymor is with us today, and she's uh, a Tony winner, she's an Emmy winner, she's a Grammy winner, uh, she's an Oscar nominee, um, and uh, her Signature success was probably the uh, the Lion King show on stage, which I think started in 1997, but I'm not sure about that. Um, when you guys hear her name, what do you think? Of? I know Maya, for you, uh, she's, she's somebody, you were very excited when you heard she was coming on the show. Yeah, I mean, as a nerdy high school kid who likes Shakespeare, you don't really have many subcultures. There's no subculture for that. There's no, you don't have your group of friends who are into it. <laughs> um, although that, that might be changing with the dark academia trend uh, among Gen Z. But so when you're into not just Shakespeare, but this relatively not as produced as much Shakespeare play called The Tempest. And then Julie Taymor releases a movie version of The Tempest, you get really excited and you feel really validated as a person, as a person who's interested in that play and those characters. So that's another Julie Taymor work to check out, The Tempest starring Helen Mirren. Yeah, it's a good one. Um, yeah, she's, uh, she's a fascinating lady and um, I think that she's a phenomenal talent. And you know, you hear the word visionary tossed around a lot these days uh in hollywood it's uh i think an optometrist might qualify as a visionary at this point uh <laughs> so, so many visionaries in hollywood uh you see ads for movies where first-time directors are declared to be visionaries and such um but i think i think julie really uh qualifies and i think that she has a, a way of seeing the world and presenting a story presenting character that's really really special and um uh so let's get to the show. Yeah, on the subject of vision, she talks a lot about her unique way of consuming visual media, whether it's photography or other stage productions. 
and she talks about her visual inspirations. She draws a lot from non-Western modes and, and types of theater. Um, she also talks about her future visions. So how she views the kind of societal quest we have to create a quote, strong female hero, um, which comes up a lot in the heavy metal comments sections about our characters, <laughs> debates about that. So she talks about that. Um, she talks about how she visualizes and conceptualizes violence yeah. um, as somebody who abhors violence, but wants to depict its realities in her films. And she talks about the visions of other directors, those she likes, those she doesn't like. So our audience is going to get a real treat into uh, all sorts of intellectual fare that you can sample. Oh, don't make it sound homework. Well, yeah. Well, I was trying to more evoke like a like a charcuterie board of delicious kind of intellectual topics that our audience of pop culture nerds, aspiring writers, creators, artists, and awesome people can draw from and use in their own discussions. You know, that's what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> charcuterie? Well, here's <laughs> here we go. Let's get the Julie take one. Oh, it's MindSpace, and we're so excited today. Uh, Julie Taymor, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to be here. Um, you know, you and I haven't met, but I was lucky enough to uh, attend uh, a, a pretty interesting event, the, the Disney Legends Breakfast that they had. Uh, I think there was 11 people that became Disney Legends, and I hadn't been to one of those before. And I, I was uh, a guest of the Jack Kirby family. They, I, I sat with the Kirby right. family and because uh, I wrote quite a lot about them over the years, and when they got their ju judgment, their settlement, they felt uh, a great deal of affection, which was very flattering. But uh, it was a day that Stan Lee was inducted and spoke, and, and Whoopi Goldberg, and Oprah Winfrey, and yourself, and just what a, wow, that was a lot for breakfast. That was a big, <laughs> that was a big. We our hands thing. Yes. Yeah, yeah, we had to put our little handprints in so that we could be up on a wall over there with the uh, seven dwarfs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and, you know, it, Disney, everything they do, uh, they, they really, they orchestrate it and they, uh, they curate it. And, uh, but, and that's what I remember about your presentation that day. You, you gave a, uh, you talked about a family that had had a loss and come to a show and, and what the Lion King had meant to them. And uh, mm -hmm. it, it was really, really very affecting. I could tell that uh, you were really speaking from the heart. Mm -hmm. No, it's true. I mean, Lion King is it's amazing. I mean, I, I've brought it all over the world for 25, almost 25 years now, I guess 23 or 24 years. 25 yeah. next year, right? Yeah. 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 And uh, how it just transcends culture, barriers, language, because a lot of things do feel of their moment. And this one transcends that in on every level, musically, visually, but also the prodigal son story, the tale, mm -hmm. the kind of um, metaphor of the story really speaks to, to human beings. And I also, of course, changed the um, gender of Rafiki and made Nala a much stronger character. She was nothing in the original um, film, really, the girlfriend or whatever. Of course. And yeah. there were no other strong female characters. So Rafiki became a real shaman, a dukan, a, a kind of based on on African female um, shamans, uh, or what we used to say, witch doctors, which is really a bad term. Sure. So, but the wise old woman who can use magic as well. That's great. And 
so that, yes, I was allowed to play with the music and I brought those melodies and then we end up with songs like He Lives in You or They Live in You, which to me that and Shadowlands and Endless Night, I, they're, they're to me the greatest songs. I mean, I, I, I do like the uh, famous songs, but especially with Love OM's choruses underneath it, like Circle of Life without the African vocals under is, it's okay, but it really, it's greatness is, is what Lebo's contribution and the choral contribution is to that. Sure. But, but the other songs, which are equally half, if not more, were all new to the Broadway uh, stage production and added, added a completely non-pop oriented level to it. Yeah. But that would be closer to South African choral style of singing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the, the, the amazing innovations and, and uh, uh, just the innovative spirit of the, the puppetry and the, represent, the presentation of it. Um, uh, it, it did this, is, was this an instance where it was material presented itself to pursue some concepts and, and uh, approaches that you had really already been working on, like, uh, or, you know, did, do you have to invent this whole cloth? No, um, no, no. I, I have done all kinds of theater my whole life. You... I've done Shakespeare without puppetry and masks. I, but I had recently done a, a major opera in Japan, Oedipus Rex with Seiji Ozawa and Jesse Norman and Bryn Terfel, where uh, Stravinsky and Jean Cocteau had said for Oedipus Rex, they wanted masks used. Mm -hmm. So I had to find a way that opera, opera singers could wear masks because they wanted much more of an emblematic archetypal approach to the characters. They didn't want the individual personalities. So I used a kind of jumping off of Cycladic, ancient Greek sort of sculpture. I put these masks on top of the opera singer's heads because you're not gonna put a mask on Jesse Norman's face. And also how would they sing, you know, the, right. the resonating blah, blah, blah. So yeah. I had done that with larger hands. I had created larger than life emblematic um, uh, human figures with the opera singers, which created a duality where the, the, the humanity and the came through the voice and the facial, but this was more symbolic of female or leader or seer or all the different characters. Yeah. So I use that principle in thinking of how do I do animals? You know, I don't wanna hide my actors in furry costumes and lose their personality, especially because if you look at that first animated film, not the second one, the second one kind of, to me, lost that. I mean, it doesn't have what I think was great about the first animation, which is the human personality coming through the facial expressions because it wasn't realistic. The second one's realistic. So animals don't have human facial expression. So you kind of lose that. Whereas if you look at Scar, for instance, Jeremy Irons, his entire voice is amplified through the facial expressions of the lion. Absolutely. So there was already a duality of human and animal right there. So I thought, okay, that's what I'm going to do on the stage. I'm going to have the human and the animal, animal simultaneously, a kind of double event. Yeah, that's really fascinating. It, it, it's, it's, it's interesting what you say. Um, they call these movies uh, live action, but actually they're photorealistic. Yeah, it's animation that's photorealistic. It's CGI animation. That's yeah, all. yeah, exactly. Um, it's kind of a, a misnomer, uh, but the uh, the idea that just be, a, be that the idea that just because you can do something means that you should like uh, uh, the idea that <laughs> you know like that there's this incredible uh, uh, expenditure of resources and 
and technology to achieve this kind of, it's like a parlor trick, uh, but it, it doesn't really, uh, it doesn't even come close to the, the dramatic success of uh, the film or the Broadway show in, in, in that, that it takes it further away from performance. Mm. You know? Well, it's hard. I mean, they've done it so well on the Jungle Book and, and mm -hmm. there wasn't a, a Broadway show before that or an animation as good. You know what I mean? There wasn't sure. two existing very. And then they went back, I think, in this newer feature film, they got rid of all of the development of stories. Rafiki became male again. You know, they didn't, which is fine because that left our musical intact because eventually I definitely and I, even then I wanted to do a live action, a real live action movie musical of The Lion King. So maybe eventually we'll be able to do that. Yeah, that seems like a, a, a it would be the net, uh, the natural progression. Uh, you know, I think you, so. I mean, yeah. we've had 90 million people see the, the theatrical version all over the world for the last 25 years. Only the penguins is the only, the, yeah, the only continent that hasn't seen it is, is you know, inhabited by penguins and I don't think they <laughs> care less, you know? <laughs> That's great. Uh, you know, you, th you think so much, obviously, uh, through uh, your studies and your career and uh, everything that you've done um, about the way that people perceive performance, about the way they perceive symbols, about the way that they take in the information that's on a screen or on a stage. Mm. We, we live in this digital era now and, and you know, I, I have two kids, uh, both under 25, and they took more photographs in the first 10 years of their lives than the previous 10 generations of their family. And that changes the way that they process information, the way that they mm. perceive entertainment. Um, I'm, I'm curious from your point of view, when you think about audiences and, and how to present and reach them, does it change because of things like that? Well, I, it depends on how they're, how they're taking those photographs. I mean, I know we all have iPhones and I take an enormous amount of pictures as well, as does Elliot, the, uh, my other half, a composer. And he's, he's just such a good photographer. I mean, I look at, and then you can play with the color, go black and white yeah. or expand or this and that. So I think the, the positive side is that, it, that people, when they're now being their own photographer or filmmaker or whatever with the digital expansion, they're, they're able to, to um, look at things with a keener eye. You know, they don't take it all for granted. They go, oh my God, that's stunningly beautiful. Or, wow. But then there's the other side, which is just where they're not actually living what they're in. And right. everything is about recording or showing their friends or Instagramming or whatever it might be. And that is tragic to me because that there, there should be that moment where there is no... I, I'll, I'll give you an example. I went to Indonesia when I was 21 on a fellowship. And I was going to stay in Java and Bali for three months and I stayed four years. Wow. I would say the first two years, you know, there was no cell phone. So I had a camera, you know, a nice, uh, good camera. Great. And after about a year, I never took a picture again really? because I found that the, the camera distanced me from the experience. So it's pretty logical. I, I just, you know, now I regret that I don't have photos, that I don't right. have a diary, that I didn't make movies because that's my past and storytelling. But in the moment, I lived what I was living of and it course. was nobody else's business, frankly. You yeah. know, I wasn't doing it to write a book, make a movie, have people appreciate me or, you know, none of that stuff was, was a part of it. I was just living day by day, not knowing how long, where I was going, what was going to happen and without planning. Yeah. 
Yeah, you were present. Uh, yeah. You know, you present in every way. Uh, yeah. It's a fascinating thing. Yeah, there's a, an uh, anticipated nostalgia that has replaced. Yeah, anticipated nostalgia. That's beautiful. <laughs> you know, that's a, that's replaced like presence uh, in in a lot of ways. Uh, but and, but of course, you know, as you say, it, it, it's not all negative. I mean, that is negative. But then there's the uh, the affinities. Uh, like my kids, they're so visual and they process things so quickly and differently than I think I did. Uh, so the, you know, the, there's there's flip sides to everything. Uh, what are you most excited about? Uh, well, I guess every every moment in our life, uh, there's a challenge and there's an opportunity in front of us. What what's the challenge like right now as a creator, as an artist uh, that that you're facing? Would you say? Well, I just did this film, The Glorious, uh, yeah. with you know a lot of great people: Julianne Morley, Shavit Kander, Janelle Monae, Lorraine Toussaint, you know, Bette Midler, and I we're we're you know we're we're unhappy that not more people know about it. And so what we did was we got hit with the pandemic in a negative way because our movie, which was really phenomenal at Sundance uh, over a year ago, we had a huge thousand people or more audience that was cheering, but we never were able to bring it to movie theaters because of the pandemic. And because we weren't in one of those streamers, their original, we didn't get the support. Our distributors, didn't have the money to do the marketing and advertising. I did as much as we could, but so it kind—it's there on Amazon, Amazon, whatever streaming. Right. But you have to look for it. Right. And it, this is the most—I don't know if you saw it, but it is absolutely to a T what's happening now. And Gloria Steinem and all of us—you know—we had planned to go out for the election and really travel on a bus from from swing state to swing state, really talking about these issues. But it's a very fun movie. It's very dramatic and t entertaining. And I think people think, oh, Gloria Steinem, oh, the women's movement, oh, Femvig, oh, it's going to be broccoli or something. But it's not. It's <laughs> thoroughly fun. enjoyable. And men like it as much as women. But we, I found that that those streaming, there's a lot of it. There has been in the past a lot of interesting things. Right now, I can find almost nothing that I want to see, quite honestly. Yeah. And I think it. I think that the the streamers are now trying to be the next, they're the studios. So they're going for the popcorn movies. I mean, they're right. not, they used to be the places where you could really find and go to have made some really unusual things that didn't require big stars to get them financed and could be multiple levels, could be the $30 million. Now it's you're either down to $5 million or less movies or you're into the big, big thing. Yeah. And so I'm feeling both the good and the bad of, how we now have put it into the box, you know, or into the computer or on, on your, your screen at home. And I, I, the joy that I've had in live theater where, where you, or it's palpable, the audience response is so critical in live theater. And then in, when you have a movie like The Glorious that's got a lot of humor in it and audiences bond, you feel that energy. You can watch it at home and enjoy it, but you know, does it replace the experience of going to the movie theater? No, not even remotely. Not not at all, actually. So there's bad things about going to movie theaters too. People talk too much, the popcorn noise is dirty, blah, blah. But I do think there is a, a, a place and hopefully people will do to make this kind of communal experience of watching entertainment uh, uh, really exciting again. And I would especially think that young people don't want to just stay at home 
and you know whether it's their parents home or even their own apartment and just watch show after show after show without going out without having that feeling because originally stories were all told around a campfire it's not that you couldn't just tell a bedtime story to your child you know in your in your tent or your cave but it was there to experience it around a fire in a circle and i think that i think that that i'm 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 really challenged by new kinds of theaters i'm not as a theater director, I'm not that interested in proscenium because I think proscenium, those ones that are on Broadway, it's far away, it's almost framed. So, you know, the people are little unless you're in the front. And then if you're in the front, you don't get the, you know what I mean? There's always something. So I'm looking to create, there are some new kinds of theaters that blend film and theater, not just film as backgrounds, but as foreground where you're moving in dimensions and that the theater can surround you. So it's experiential. And, you know, without getting into precisely, I'm working on these ideas right now for musicals, for other kinds of theater. And that that excites me as to what what do people want to go to and how do you get a visceral experience where you're you're using not just your eyes and your ears, but other parts of your body, you know, these senses are really engaged. Yeah, no, that's really fascinating. Um, you, uh, it seems to me in this time that we, uh, we're in and uh, the things that we've gone through, uh, you know, with, uh, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and uh, uh, the divisive politics, I mean, un unbelievably polarizing. Uh, it seems to me like the really perverse part of the challenge that we have with the pandemic is that it, it's the most important time to go and knock on your neighbor's door and meet them. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. It, it's what I've wanted to do, like, for like a year and a half, you know, but this is not the time to be removed from people. And it's exactly what we have to do. It's, it's just interesting the way that challenges present themselves like that. Um, well, I mean, the Zoom thing, like what you're doing now, that's a plus that came out of it, that you actually can meet people this way and have a conversation across country and bring all of your family from all over and celebrate. Uh, my mother turned 100 last week. And oh, that's great. You know, there were 150 people on the Zoom and the senators and governors of Massachusetts. I mean, I, I learned that my mother is uh, unbelievable. She was a very big politico and still has that. And she wrote a book and running against the wind. But it was an, a phenomenal event. Finally, because I'm quote, vaccinated, today is the second week after the second vaccination. Tomorrow, I'm going off this island for the first time to see my mom, you know, <laughs> oh, so oh, I'm that's excited. Great. Oh, that's but really I, exciting. I, yeah, I really, I agree with you. It's like, it's weird to have been removed, but many people, if they weren't suffering from lack of money, of housing, all the horrible things that most people are suffering through this pandemic, there mm. are some who were over lucky, and I consider my myself one of those where I'm in isolation in the countryside where I really got to stop and appreciate nature in a way that I don't have time for normally. Yeah. So yeah. I wrote a screenplay. I wrote another one with somebody else. You know, I did writing that I've never done before. Um, I'd like to be in production, but now I have to gear up and get that stuff out there. And yeah, seasons. It's all seasonal, right? There's seasons yeah. that present themselves. Um, you're talking about uh, using uh, uh, film in, uh, in the way that's not just background uh, mm -hmm. and using the environments of a, a venue. Uh, I, there was a concert that I saw that uh, the, the weekend did in, in um, Santa Monica and the way that they used uh, the walls and uh, with uh, 
digital imagery. It's just, it really felt to me like uh, things were on the, the verge of really changing. Like there, it seems to me that this canvas is gonna really shape, reshape itself. Uh, in the not it was the weekend. Future. It probably was Es Devlin designing. Was it Es Devlin designing? Do you I'm know? Embarrassed to say, I'm not sure. I, well, I she does him. She's Es Beyonce and and numbers, but she's she's the designer that I've been working with on some of these concepts. Okay, so it was really breathtaking. She, yeah, yeah, she does amazing sculptural, scenic work with projections and and yeah, it's pretty. Yeah, and, and a sense of place and 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 transportive uh, and and uh, just the atmosphere of it uh, is really really immersive mm -hmm. uh, and it just didn't look clunky it, it, there was a real a smoothness to it i think right that, uh, that uh fits the, the music uh for you uh going to like uh more traditional uh speaking more about more traditional concerts or uh, mainstream pop concerts uh, traditions uh is there have been shows through the years that were you know that really uh, you saw as groundbreaking or uh that were influential on you? Not really, I don't go to yeah. concerts. So- I was curious you know, if that was something that yeah, you I don't, really to, I don't go to rock or pop or those kinds of concerts. So I, I haven't really watched those um, in person. Um, no, I think, I think the things that really affected me were things that were just well-directed and active, you know, wasn't mm. about the technology at all. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I, I like when technology is brought to bear in a way that uh, isn't necessarily uh, uh, obvious. Like uh, with the, the Les Mis film, the use of uh, CGI to cover up the microphones to gather uh, so you could, they could get uh, individual performances on the, in the moment. On the, you mean the musical know, Les Mis? Uh, the, the, the adaptation of the film, how they yeah, did you it. Saw, you saw Across the Universe, right? Of course. Yeah, so we, before, there are no microphones. Um, there, it's the same as you would do in a normal film, body mics or booms, right? It's exactly the same. But, you know, when we did Across the Universe, 90% of our singing was live. It was live, it was not lip sync. And I actually spoke to the director of Les Mis and told him how he should do that because he, he said he had been told that he had to lip sync. And I said, no. Don't lip, sync. don't lip sync unless you have to because of car noise or airplanes or you know or your yeah. giant choruses. So you know the the sing actor singers wear earwigs. They wear these little earwigs where they can hear the um, the the track, the sure. either the piano track or whatever track. And so they're singing to the track, which then if if there is a problem with the sound, you can always put in the uh, pre-recorded music or go back in and record because there's a click track or something. You know, there's an ability to, you're singing to a rhythm that exists. So- Of course. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, um, but I think we didn't, we didn't brag about it. Right, well, right. Across the universe so that when, when the guys in Les Mis started to say, oh yeah, we were singing live. I'm going, yeah, well, who doesn't? I mean, you do musicals, That's people sing for two hours live. It's no big deal to right. sing live. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, that <laughs> makes sense. to brag about guys. It's normal. Yeah. Um, no, I, I, that makes perfect sense. Uh, uh, and with Across the Universe, I mean, taking on the, the Beatles catalog, um, well, with the Beatles in general, the thing that kind of always surprises me is is really how short a period of time they recorded. I mean, like, if you look at, yeah, I mean, 
really and, and like probably 260 270 songs mm-hmm. uh i mean what is that per day like it's a it's like incredible uh did you find that your appreciation for the music changed during that process absolutely or? I think that, you know, I grew up with the Beatles. I was probably around 11 or 12 years old, you know, when they uh, were at their heyday. Uh, and I, like many people, Rolling Stones or Beatles? Yeah. And I'd be very sophisticated and go, Rolling Stones, you know, edgy or dark or this or that. And, uh, and when, we, when I started to create the story of these six young people from across the universe, and started it sort of in the early 60s. You know, what we did was we took the full seven years of their writing music and condensed it into more like a four year period of time. But it starts with the innocence. So you go back to the early songs, like I wanna hold your hand and he loves you, she loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, those things, complete Elliot who did most of the um, uh, arrangements, which are new, um, new arrangements, which make you hear it differently. And when you have a female sing in slow motion and slow down, I want to hold your hand to another female. You know, it's not, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not, you know, it doesn't have that fast rhythm. Uh, You rehear the brilliance of the melodies. You know, these these were extraordinary songs. So I I think Elliot and I both totally reappreciated the early Beatles. We always like revolution or you know some of the more psychedelic stuff and and political stuff later on, um, Blue Jay Way and all the kind of cooler things later. But total new appreciation for the whole early Beatles and also the fact that these young guys were writing to twelve and thirteen year old girls. They were writing as excuse me not to them as them. So the lyrics were uh, they're so naive and and earnest and you'd never hear a young man a male singers creating that kind of lyric now you know they'd be they be they have to be tough you know they have to be tough yeah. so that they were writing from a point of view a perspective of a of a 14 year old girl and that's why the girls would go nuts with these things you know it was this incredible combo of cute young men but also that they're singing what i feel yeah, it's 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 fascinating to think about when that, uh, you know, the, the it went a couple degrees where people widely recognized that this wasn't just disposable pop, you know, ditties. That this was something right. that was of substance, and it, it's it's fascinating to kind of go back and try to divine where that point was, and if they knew anything was changing, you know, in in their own artistic expression. Well, they, they were very aware of the change. I mean, drugs were also part of the change, but, but sure. drugs and politics, the war, mm-hmm. you know, when they started and the way our film is structured is it's almost the late 1950s, Father Knows Best, you know, everything. There was an innocence, absolute innocence to um, young Lucy and Max at college. And then, and then when the, the, um, draft happens and the war and people die and the riots in Detroit and you know the the race racial um the civil rights movement starts to become more uh, prevalent or out there even in the suburbs the white suburbs you know they become aware of these things and the art movement that's what happened to the Beatles I mean they went from from their own little you know teenage lives to being world world people, people who were aware of their power and, and the ability to make a difference. 
Um, Julie, I was wondering, you know, when uh, there's so many talents that you've worked with, so many people, uh, uh, extraordinary collaborators, but I, I wonder if there's any that fall in that category of almost like uh, the spooky good people, the uh, spooky what? good, like uh, spooky? spooky, like you, like unexplainably talented or, or just people that you've met that uh, uh, they seem, you know, maybe uh, just slightly uh, removed from the, the average experience. Oh, I've worked with some phenomenal actors. I've been really lucky with Helen Mirren and, and Anthony Hopkins and Harry Lennox. And, you know, just through all my films have, have had some spectacular actors. Sure. Uh, that are that are just on another level. So I've been lucky in opera singers like like as I said, Jesse Norman, um, Philip Language, Bryn Turfel, and as far as uh, artists, designers, um, Es Devlin is one of the greatest out there. You know, if you if you I, I know she does the weekend, so I would imagine she did that. And and when you work with a designer, even though I am a designer, it's I always like to work with people who are better than myself or as good, if not better, because right. then they pull you. You know, you get pulled out. You get you get challenged. You know, you get to to uh, really move out of your own comfort zone or out of what your own imagination is capable of. So, um, I'm just thinking. You know, I've I've done I've done Mozart, Stravinsky. Just Wagner, you know, I've, I've worked with absolutely amazing composers, but I would say Elliot Goldenthal is the, is the key figure in my life in all ways, but I also think that he's one of the great, great composers, especially in, in the realms of drama. We've done opera, Grendel, um, which is the John Gardner novel from, you know, the, the monster's point of view of Beowulf. And he's done every movie that I've done. Um, and he's won Academy Awards for Frida. He's been nominated. So he's also a symphonic composer. And I am really, because composing music is something that I, I don't understand. You know, I don't do it all. I design, I draw, I sculpt, I write, but composing music. So that's the one that I would say answers that. I live with a composer who I think is a genius. and. I, I, you know, I listen to his just symphonies and his trumpet concertos and, you know, the things that you wouldn't know unless you go searching Goldenthal and want to see all of his work, but he's done ballets. He's the first American composer to actually do a three-act ballet for American Ballet Theater. He did Othello. So he's vastly talented. And that that's listening to how he gets to those things. And I hear he's a music studio here and I hear him on, you know, or, or when I'm working on something like The Glorious, the most recent film, how he came up with that opening cue. How did he come up? Because music is so abstract. It's so non-literal that I find it amazing. And, you know, I'm writing this new screenplay, which is the biggest concept I've ever come up with. And hopefully I'll get it funded. But, you know, it's a screenplay. And he and I both discuss how radically different the ending can be depending on the music you know mm. um, what how music really transforms storytelling absolutely and, and it, it transcends it and it can subvert it it can okay. undermine it it can amplify it oh, i can tell you a good story about about learning um, my first feature film which is titus uh -huh. um which i i would say is my favorite film so it's hard right. to get, it's hard to see, but if you can, if you, have you seen it, Titus? I have seen it, I have. Okay. And, it's the wildest uh, one of mine, right? Yeah, it's, it's fantastic, wildest. yeah. 
And uh, I remember, cause it was my first feature, I'd done a smaller film, but this is, uh, Elliot hadn't scored it yet, or he'd, pre, he'd pre-scored a few sections that needed to have music cause they were either dance moments of a party or, you know, you had to have the music in advance, but generally he waits till the movie is done, edited. Okay. And uh, there is a horrible scene in there where Lavinia is a pre-rape scene where she's being taunted by the enemy sons. Tamara, which is Jessica Lang, her, her sons are taunting this, she, they kill her husband, <laughs> dump him in a pit, and then they're pulling her buttons off one. And as Shakespeare does, and this is a violent Shakespeare, much of the real violence is off camera, off stage, right. but the pre-violence is on. And I shot it with Steadicam, the nauseating, if you remember, in the woods where these two boys are teasing her and moving around and it's dizzying. Now, Elliot wasn't ready to put a score down. So we have a music editor who's working with me, who, who Elliot likes very much and has worked with many times on other people's features, not just my work, because he's done many, many feature films. Um, we try out some music. And first he brings in something like rock heavy metal. And it works like, quote, gang busters, gang rape busters. And I'm sitting there watching this piece of film, Shakespeare film about the most violent thing, this woman being tormented. And I immediately said, oh, my God, that's horrible. We cannot use that. It's like Quentin Tarantino. It's making this fun. And so I, I, I said, we can't do this. And I spoke to Elliot and he says, wait, let me do this from Lavinia's point of view. So he wrote a string quartet that is completely playing the interior experience of the woman, not the boys. And it works, it's exciting, but it changes the audience's uh, complete appreciation or experience of the scene because they are now in the, in the, in the position of that young woman. Yeah. And I think that music is used so irresponsibly in movies that are primarily violent. And even though I, you know, I do like some Quentin Tarantino, I would say that's kind of his thing. And many others where you just, you know, put that dry or, or in the superhero and super Marvel comics and all of right. that stuff, they put this thing and, and people get jazzed up and young guys get all excited and this and that. It's got nothing to do with the point of view. Well, if it does, it's the murderer's point of view, you know, yeah, it's the Joker's the point of view. It's not about the victims. It's not about it. So you've got to make that decision. And that makes Titus, even though I just finished watching five, six seasons of The Americans. It's the most violent thing I've ever seen. One reason I stayed watching it was because Matthew Reese who is the lead in that, I discovered him, I would say, because <laughs> yeah. he was about 21 or 22 when he when he plays that bad boy in the scene I just discussed. Yeah. He's in Titus, you know, I found him in LA, you know, I auditioned him. So I adore him and I think he's a magnificent actor. So I watched it, but I'm kind of sitting there shocked at how we've become absolutely inured to violence. Yeah. You know, the violence is beyond where Shakespeare's Titus Andronicus was, was, you know, lambasted for years for being too violent. Well, there's maybe 15 or 16 murders yeah. in it, and most of them are off screen. But it's because also it's fem violence against females, which is very, very tough, some of it. 
Yeah. Uh, but it's also how do you tell that story? You know, it's how you do it. You can make it Grand Guignol and a lot of fun, which a lot of people do. Right. That's not how I saw the story. There's not that there is an enormous humor. There is. It's a black comedy in certain right. places. But but it's also the most thoroughly extensive um, uh, uh, treatise on violence, every kind of violence that I've ever come across, ever, yeah. in yeah. all all artwork. Yeah, and, and by and the the approach that you ended up with makes it uh, about consequence. It becomes yeah. it's not about the, the the physics or the ballet of violence of, of yeah. that moment. It's about the consequences in the interior and and you know the repercussions of it. You know, yeah. um, the, um, the never ending cycle of vengeance and and violence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's it's the thing that really bothers me the most in. American popular culture really is is the sort of cinema of vengeance. I mean, it, it, there's this this whole thing about you do things to give the uh, protagonist a reason to become a killing machine for an hour and a half. You, so, and usually that's done by destroying or torturing children or women. Yeah, uh, you know, which gives this man a, a reason a right to go to berserk for the rest vigilante. of the world. Yeah, yeah, and like, yeah. Like this is like. This is the underpinning of, of a significant portion of our cinema over like the last um, 40 years. Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, like, even even to a promising young woman, you know what I mean? It's not that she goes out and slaughters men, but you're, you're, you, you, I think a, people have said, oh, the women, women are becoming tough, you know, they're getting there. Yeah. yeah, they're they're becoming killing machines and they're becoming, let's kick ass and they're they're doing it in scampy, you know, skimpy underwear. Whatever you want to call it, they're still they're still whether it's Wonder Woman or whatever, but it's 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 pathetic to me because I mean I think this is one of the the reasons why the Glorias probably doesn't didn't catch on in a way that the what we normally call testosterone movies, which is a reason to be violent to have your blood pumped up, which is what movies do mm -hmm. or what we think they should do. It's what we sell or what they sell. Right. Um, it's. I, I think that there is such a, another storytelling factor that is equally as satisfying, but we have to open ourselves to it. And that's where, you know, women in history have learned how to control things, change things to a much more subtle way because they've had to. So now when we're saying, wow, uh, we can have this actress and she's going to be able to play the Tom, the, uh, Tom Cruise part all the actresses, yeah, they want to hold the guns. Yeah, they want to do the kick-ass stuff, you know, isn't right. that great? Now they're they're equal. And I thought, I, I actually, uh, I wrote, what do you call it? I um, I moved back, I recoiled from, from that. I think it's really, really wrong and cheesy and not strong, not equal yeah, yeah. at all. It's just, yeah. you know, it's ridiculous. It's so stupid because Obviously, you, you see something like The Old Guard or whatever that movie was. I know I shouldn't be criticizing, but there's no way that that young woman could kick that huge guy. You know, it's like, okay, so she's a superhero. That's the only way. She's got some kind of thing in her blood. So why are we saying that that's equality anyway? Why are we saying that that's a good, a good thing? Right. You know, all right, good. She's not, uh, yes, if you can defend yourself against being raped, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking yeah, about... The, the the what we what we think of equality for for female roles in movies what we, sure, what sure. we sort of say oh god finally there are roles for women yeah well 
Yeah, everybody's matching body count. Uh, yeah, that's right. Well, uh, as you know, I want to end on a positive note. I, I wanted to let you know. <laughs> <laughs> I was at a Santa Monica restaurant. I walked in and I saw the, the amazing poster for Titus, which just is such a, 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 a gripping, immediately uh, memorable image. And I saw it on the wall there and I said, oh, that's pretty cool. And then I looked down and and Sir Anthony, at, which please call me Tony, as he is, which I love, uh, is sitting right underneath it. Are you uh, kidding me? <laughs> and he just that? looked at me and he winked and had some tea and he goes, I know. <laughs> I just thought that was great. When, when was that? That's so this funny. Was, this, it's one of my first, uh, uh, well, let's see, I would say that was, it was quite a while ago. Like, Oh, wow, too bad. I yeah, love that. Quite, yeah, it was quite a while ago, but it was one of my uh, signature LA memories for quite uh, some That's time. That's great. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, the the look on his face, he was really enjoying it. I, I got to talk to him a little bit when he was working on Thor. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, what, a, what just a lovely guy and just such a, a fascinating sense of the world, you know, the way that he meets oh, the world. His performance in The Father is incredible. Have you seen that? Yeah. It's just incredible. Yeah. yeah. I wish you would be recognized for that, but there were a lot of good performances in that in that category this year. So it's maybe the uh, the good thing about uh, the digital world that we live in is that uh, the tale is long, as they say. The things that will now be uh, treated as books on a shelf and never really put away. So I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. So well, I can't thank you enough for joining us today. Sure. And, uh, it's a it's a real treat to talk to you. It's it's so nice to. Uh, uh, like I said, audacity is my favorite thing. So uh, uh, you're high on the list. <laughs> Thank you so much. Good, good to meet you, Jeff. All right. Okay. All right. Take care. Okay. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Cheers. That was Jeff Bousset's Mind Space with director Julie Taymor. We had a great time talking about her images. And as we're doing our post-mortem discussion, what Taymor was saying about photographs from her time in Indonesia and Bali and how we must resist the pressure to photograph everything, the compulsion. It reminded me a lot of this passage from photography, photography by Susan Sontag that I think I'm going to read to us and we can discuss afterwards because I think, Garrett, you're a bit older than I am and Jeff, you're elder statesman to us both. So I think generationally, we can bring a lot to the differences in how we've experienced imagery, image consumption, compulsion to capture the world. So Sontag's, Sontag says, quote, industrial societies turn their citizens into image junkies. It is the most irresistible form of mental pollution, poignant longings for beauty for an end to probing below the surface, for a redemption and celebration of the body of the world, which I think she's meaning to refer to like kind of a surface level body, the way yeah. that photographs capture the surfaces of things. Uh, all these elements of erotic feeling, of course it's erotic <laughs> in Sontag, are affirmed in the pleasure we take in photographs, but other less liberating feelings are expressed as well. It would not be wrong to speak of people having a compulsion to photograph, to turn experience itself into a way of seeing. Ultimately, having an experience becomes identical with taking a photograph of it. Participating in a public event comes more and more to be equivalent to looking at it in photographed form. That most logical of 19th century aesthetes 
Mallarmé said that everything in the world exists in order to end in a book. Today, everything exists to end in a photograph. Hmm. That's interesting. It's, uh, do you know about when she wrote that? About what time? Like a general uh, era? Dude, I don't know. Yeah. I'm the, guessing uh, 70s. Yeah, I would, I would assume so. Um, and of course, you know, the, the difference between then and now is the digital revolution and, and, and the way that photographs are taken and what they represent and how they, the entire interaction with photographs has changed in some ways and then in other ways hasn't changed. You know, some of the philosophical stuff has, certainly hasn't changed. But uh, uh, I, I, I'm fascinated by this, this concept of, uh, you know, anticipated nostalgia that uh, when people are presented with a moment in life um, that is you know, unique or uh, uh, exciting to them, the first instinct now is often to reach for their phone to document it. And while they're documenting it, they are withdrawing from it, in a sense. You know, you, as soon as you are looking at a phone and framing something and uh, the person you're filming, if they can see it, that changes their perception. You know, if you want to change something, Ansel Adams said, just point a camera at it. Uh, um, and the idea that while you're taking that image, you are thinking already about sharing it on social media and how that anticipated nostalgia for this moment replaces the actual memory of the moment in some ways. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an intriguing uh, look into the behavior of, of, of social media era I, and digital files. Even. I noticed that most, I feel like at concerts, when you are there and it's a moment and this song, like you're never going to hear it again because right. it's only performed that one time. That's the only time you're going to hear it. But then everyone has their phone out and recording it. It's like, you're not listening to it. You're just, you're trying to record it on your little shitty iPhone speakers That's to right. play it back. It's like, but you're here now, listen to it. I saw that. It made me really mad. Um, it's actually funny. Julia Taymor was on today uh, at a Paul McCartney concert. Uh -huh. Everyone around me, the second he started playing any song that was noticeable, which is all of them. Yeah, right, right. Everyone pulls their phone out and starts recording. And it's like... <laughs> Just be here, be here now, as George Harrison would say. Exactly, yeah, exactly. And, and um, there's also, uh, the, I, well, I went to a, a Nine Inch Nails show. I went, I, I went uh, up to um, Toronto to interview uh, Trent Reznor and, and went to a couple shows. And um, there was something different about the show and I couldn't put my finger on it right away. Uh, there was something really, um, unusual about it and but it was elusive to me what it was at first it was an arena show but the arena was just like every other arena um but the difference is is that all the screens in the venue uh were taken down or off or off or covered so the there were no screens visible uh fixed screens in in the arena now usually you go to a concert like that you'll see a, a tv at every uh you know uh you know at every gate exits uh, onto the concourse, but you also see maybe a jumbotron or, or uh, the large digital screens, you know, or, or different things. So like uh, you can actually watch a screen representation of the concert that's just a slightly different sight line away. But this one, by having all the screens kind of extinguished, uh, it created this 
entirely different intensity. Like it, it, everybody's focus was on the stage because of the bright spotlight there. And there really was no competing light other than cell phones, you know? Um, it, it gave it like a, a lot more of a tribal, um, you know, sort of atmosphere, like just the, the, the rep uh, what screens represent in our lives and what they, how they affect our dynamic and the social interactions and stuff. It, it's just, it's pretty fascinating stuff. And, you know, Julie Taymor is, is, you know, one of the most interesting visualists uh, around, you know, and just the way she sees things. And um, I, I'm really fascinated by the Lion King stage show that she did and also by the Spider-Man show, uh, which I cannot believe was never even mentioned. I don't think, I don't think we even mentioned it during the interview. That was uh, her. Uh, what's that? She did that, the Spider-Man stage show? <laughs> yeah, she did. That's awesome. I yeah. don't, I didn't know that. That's. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's what I, I mean, one of the things I expected to talk to her about, uh, and then, uh, the conversation went in other directions and, and I, it's also, it's, it's quite honestly, it's, it's a, a tender topic. Uh, you know, I mean, she, uh, had a big falling out with, uh, Bono and, and, and the edge. Mm. Uh, after the show had started and uh, essentially Julie was fired and uh, they brought in another director and they started reworking the show and uh, and uh, she had sort of her entire career is about the auteur sensibility you know um, one person really kind of being the deciding factor to give you a distinctive and, and unified kind of uh, uh, you know work um so i don't think she really felt like uh reworking the show so she kind of kicked in her heels and, and and then they went in another direction but prior to that you know the show was already established as a sort of a historic uh failure uh by uh critical measure uh, a lot of bad reviews and a, a lot of uh injuries uh, a lot of it was mocked uh, thank God no one died or anything like that, but uh, some people were pretty severely injured in the course of filming it because of the way that they wanted to present Spider-Man swinging on his webs and stuff. And uh, it also, uh, because of the budget, uh, it, you know, the production budget, it, it did not, it was not a profitable show. It was one of the biggest, uh, I think, failures in the history of Broadway. So, and I also think it's an interesting case study of how sometimes a work's fate is sealed by rumor and preemptive buzz before it's even, and those can impact its chances too. I had a couple of friends who saw it. I think it was the second version, so not her original vision, but they said yeah. it was fine. It was enjoyable. They, yeah. they liked it. It was cool. It was a good way to spend an afternoon. Uh, yeah, so I think... Yeah, it's an interesting case study of whether the reality of art meets the mythology of what our culture has made of it. Sure, sure. You know, I mean, perception, especially now with uh, uh, social media, uh, the almost the the urge and the uh, uh, and the the popularity of you know hot takes and and, and just uh, quick quick reactions. Like you know, a movie comes out on Thursday at midnight by. You know, going into Friday morning and by you know 1 a.m. it's either a failure or a success you know according to Twitter it's either this or that it's real binary usually because people want to be dramatic and noticed with their 
their their uh, opinions so they they are overly emphatic or even uh harsh but uh you know i i, I mean advanced word can do a lot you know certainly uh you know you look at movies like john carter i think that movie is a lot better than than people thought it was because you know it, it was deemed as failure so quickly but but then other movies i mean avatar like a, a week before that movie came out people were gonna say we're saying it was going to be the biggest failure in history and and that's one where you know when people got in the room with it it won over the audience you know, you know so uh it, it can definitely uh it can definitely handicap uh, a project or or torpedo it uh sometimes it, it, it doesn't matter some some things can rise above it but uh, it's probably harder and harder because of that judgment period now. Yeah. You know? I think I think Avatar is very <laughs> interesting because I think its judgment has, you've mentioned the distance of the people before its release saying, oh, this is going to be bad. I think that it's reached a point where we're as distant from its release that people are now retroactively having very kind of detached takes. Like, I think it's very fashionable for people to say, oh, Avatar, it was such a dud. You know, they never made a sequel nobody really cites it as anything. Whereas I don't think, I think it definitely had its problems that I noticed when I saw it, but I think it was huge. I think it's, a, I think oh. it's, it's, it's better than people are allowing it to age. Oh yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. not, it's not, it's not going to be fashion. It's not a fashion yeah. cool movie to like. Uh, and I think, you know, one of the things is that, you know, you, you look at what Avatar, Avatar did in, you know, it's, uh, box office you know mm -hmm. two billion dollars uh uh i mean obviously it was a sensation uh but i think one of the things that people notice is that you know there are no avatar toys there are no avatar conventions i mean there's there's conventions for dark shadows and there's conventions for uh Battlestar galactica that's not even on anymore but you know there's never been an avatar convention there's never you know and, and but the thing is is that movie it's 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 great success was as spectacle. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it was achieving something on the screen that no one had ever done before. Uh, so much like King Kong or Wizard of the Oz, you know, uh, the Wizard of Oz. Um, it's as much about the visual uh, achievement of it as it is about the story. And in in the case of Avatar, I, I think that you know, it's it's it was very old fashioned story, and it doesn't have you know. Uh, the character, the characters that really connect with people, I think, you know, like, mm -hmm. if I say, uh, name a professor from Harry Potter, you know, like, people say you're like, they'll be up to like 20, 30, you know, like some people, uh, most people will be able to get six or seven. Uh, if I say, you know, who, who's in Avatar, name a character in Avatar, there's like, well, there's Natiri, the, the angry blue dude sigourney weaver yeah angry blue dude sigourney weaver blue uh, <laughs> then there's like tree you know like it's it's not there's not and that's not a slam on it uh, i mean it it was a movie that uh was you know uh visually built to take you on this this uh this experience and this spectacle and uh and but at times it feels to me like sometimes it, that that makes you it keeps you removed from it you know like yeah. a, uh, emotionally like you know i can't think of you know but it sounds like i'm slamming the movie but i'm really not but it's just it was a different it was a different uh achievement 
Yeah, I think during production, they really struggled to translate their vision, which was essentially art for the sake of this vast world building. Right. There's a great video on YouTube that I think if you're a Mindspace listener, you will absolutely love. It's by a channel called Sideways, and it's about the ethnomusicology that was done to try to create a musical style for the Navi. Um, yeah that took into account the number of fingers they have, their appendages, the cycle of the planets overhead, uh, the, the fauna that was created for this world and the flora and what instruments they could fashion out of that. So they yeah. took a bunch of professional ethnomusicologists, which are people who kind of study music and anthropology and world cultures and, and different sort of how it changes from people to people. They yeah. took They took these professionals and produced libraries full of research on Pandora and to, yeah, and know. this was just one aspect of the film sure. um, I, know, I, did, I remember talking to James Horner at the time and like yeah and um, and how they kind of became stymied by this what they wanted to do versus what they thought the public would appreciate yeah <laughs> um, well, I mean it's you know uh, yeah, and I, I remember talking to the guy, uh, I went over to USC and talked to the guy that created the whole language mm -hmm. for the Navi, and I did a story a day on Avatar for a month, um, counting down this movie, and, and everybody thought it was going to be a failure, and I'm like, God, why did I agree to do this? Like, you know, and, um, but it ended up being like a really big deal. Uh, the night the movie came out uh, in 2009, um, I, I interviewed James Cameron and, and Sigourney and and um, Sam Worthington and John Landau, the producer on stage over at the, uh, uh, the Egyptian theater, which only, or excuse me, the Chinese theater. Um, but I only mentioned it because it was, um, it was my first stage interview that I ever did in my career and how terrified I was. Cause James Cameron was like, is so famously like intense and uh, he's much more mellow now than he used to be. But um, I remember, thinking I, there was never been a movie that had arrived on the screen with so much created for it. I mean, there was a language, there was this music, there was maps, there was, you know, there were toys, but the, people don't really remember them, but they had, um, they had this interactive uh, augmented reality thing. And um, I mean, it was, it was unbelievable, but it, it was like the amount of devotion you see to Tolkien's Middle Earth or uh, Lucas's Jedi universe, but those had story first and then reached a point where all this, uh, this immersive content and, and context was created uh, after the passion. This was created, this, this kind of immersion for, for Cameron's thing was created front-loaded. Like, you know, there, there wasn't a fan base that wanted to speak Klingon, you know, or, you know, or Navi in this, like, in this, this instance, but the language is ready waiting for them so it that made it feel even a little more contrived i think to people uh but it's well, it's it's amazing achievement what what james cameron did with that thing aren't there supposed to be sequels coming so isn't it going to be a world like a full it's on the way well yeah there's i mean the next one's underwater you know the next one uh, is, uh like they're they're on um an adjacent uh uh heavenly body um uh, and uh, they the characters return, you know, there's, uh, 
even uh, Quartz is back, even though he was killed in the last one. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, so it's uh, it's interesting. I mean, Avatar is is, is it's it's it's, it's pretty it's fairly distinctive, uh, but it, it, it's interesting the compulsion to create all this stuff that doesn't exist for it. You know, one time um, I was lucky enough to go up to Skywalker Ranch and stay there for uh, a few days and uh, talking to the people there, there, there's not that many buildings on the property, but George Lucas created a fake history for each of those buildings. Like, here's the main house. It was built in this year and stuff, and it was built by this family. No, 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 actually, it was not. They're, they're, that family's not real. Uh, no, no, here's their history. And then they, um, the barn is in a different style because the original barn burnt down, you know, after the war. And you remember everyone came and they put up the new, no, no, that did not happen. Well, okay. Uh, and like, he just has these, these entire, like, pages and pages and pages of this chronicle of, 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 a gene, uh, genealogy and uh, uh, regional, it's like the uh, the Cartwrights of the Ponderosa in, in Bonanza. There's this family that had all this influence uh, in Lucas Valley, uh, which is where, uh, you know, the ranch is. And, uh, you know, that's a really interesting compulsion, you know, like to, to create entire canvases that aren't even displayed or framed. You know, like, I mean, that's a, that's a history that no one, knows you know uh mm -hmm. but it, 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 it felt excuse me fulfills some compulsion in uh creative compulsion uh that george lucas has and i think cameron had a similar thing um but you know Cam cameron's like his own thing you know like to me he's like he seems like phineas fogg he seems like he's from another century this like uh you know um this you know renaissance guy he built his own submarine he spent a decade building his own submarine and then went down into the Marianas Trench with it, you know. And, you know, like I said, in Hollywood, there's people that go to incredible depths, but nobody goes lower than James Cameron. <laughs> we need up. to have a sound effect effect for puns, like a drum crash. <laughs> I introduced him that way once on stage, and he's like, just... <laughs> he's a really nice guy. You know, he's, he's really changed a lot. I, I, have, I could write a book about him I think because of the interesting things he, he used to be this total ogre and he changed because of two moments in his life one life-threatening both involving water um and it it's really changed him like since I've met him he's changed he's, he's so much kinder and, and he's like a really good listener now and um it's it's just interesting to see people make a dramatic change in themselves you know it's 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 yeah especially somebody that has that kind of intellect, you know, because sometimes uh, intelligence is often accompanied by arrogance uh, or stubbornness. And to see someone that smart be able to change that much is, uh, I think, pretty cool. Yeah. And, he, and he's got that hair thing and he links into the tree with it and he talks to the tree. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to Lorac. see if, if Avatar is launching an extended universe. I would love to see a Julie Taymor avatar adaptation or take or series. I think that a musical her musical in their language. Yeah, I think that her <laughs> knowledge and willingness to present non-Western forms of theatrics or visuals without watering it down, I think that that would be very valuable to 
to an avatar like project i i think i think yeah i think that's a good call and i think the the sort of the the uh the tribal um you know aesthetics kind of suit uh i mean there's a lot of similarities between lion king and, and avatar as far as the, the the kind of cultural representations and rhythms uh, mm -hmm. you could it seems like there would be a lot of uh, common ground for her to, to build on. Yeah, I would love seeing what Navi theater would look like uh, yeah. because you've got forests, so not really a place where you could put on typical stages, but you've got those massive trees. I wonder if their like theater would be more vertical in its dimensions. That would be very cool. Um, we're looking we're used to looking at theater you know if your eyes are aligned just kind of straight across but i was i wonder if the navi would incorporate multiple dimensions of of the the canopy that would be yeah although you would think too that if if you because of their ability to like link in and really kind of uh download for mm -hmm. lack of a better term uh or uh you know interface with culturally and socially uh, would they even have theater like that because the theater That's i mean true. because they have i mean we do we have theater to share our feelings and thoughts in a way that we can't but they might be able to hmm. well at the end of the movie they do have that kind of ecstatic ritual where jake is um cordoned off in his avatar body and disposes of his human one so i I'm not sure if you'd call that theatrical or if you'd call theater more ritualistic, yes. but I think they did work themselves into a very heightened um, electric state. So maybe their theater would aim to produce something like that in the group. Sure, like in like a uh, like a teddy bear luau. <laughs> yeah, or like the um, the movies in the novel Brave New World, the quote unquote feelies, where you can you not only consume the visuals, but you can feel the bear rugs underneath the the sex play and whatnot. Sure, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it was uh, I, I I can't believe I didn't bring Spider Man up. You know, I think I uh, I was. Uh, yeah, I, I'm just surprised I didn't bring it up, but we'll have her back. You try and put it in most conversations. Yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. I try to, hey, so what do you think about Spider-Man? Um, I think, uh, I don't know. Uh, I'd like to have her back sometime. Maybe we could have her back, talk about some more. Uh, yeah, she's- What her favorite science fiction stuff is. You know, I, I, was, I, I was shocked and somewhat skeptical when she said she'd never been to like a concert, like a, like a pop or rock concert, like that's just shocking to me. I, and I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if maybe she meant it professionally had been mm -hmm. like, because that'd be pretty hard to do. I mean, how do you make a Beatles movie and, and never go to yeah. a you know, you know, just I saw something about there, she was talking about wanting to do a second one soon and oh. the, the two leads are up for it. So oh, maybe wow. when that happens, we can have her back. Mm -hmm. Totally, totally. Yeah, oh, um, Jeff, you, you could talk to her about Florida because I think an upcoming project of hers that she's working on is called Gun Love and it takes place in a trailer park in Florida. People, and, so yeah, sure. Um, I think it's part of like the steadily growing genre of 
I'm not sure what you'd call it, but like Flor Floridian, like Gothic. Yeah, yeah kind of like that Carl Hyacin. Yeah. Uh, uh, also kind of Elmore Leonard's in there with like things like, uh, um, you know, like uh, he did Glitz and Get Shorty, but he had some, oh, with Miami Blues, he did Miami Blues. Yeah, that's uh, kind of uh, humidity noir. Yeah. I think I think there's a huge public appetite for it with things like Tiger King and on becoming a god in Central Florida. Yeah, yeah. To say nothing of the Florida Man Twitter. Yeah, although <laughs> underneath all that, there's a there's a real, as a Floridian, a native Floridian uh, who escaped. I there's that there's a lot of kind of like a condescending sourness, you know. Uh, to a lot of that stuff but I have a condescending sourness toward Florida myself so it's uh I understand it but uh is that one of those like I can say this but you can't well the thing is uh I feel like I can say this and wow everybody says it so like, it's, <laughs> you know it's uh there's no there's no uh judgment in it it's just it kind of makes me bad and I think a lot of it has to do quite honestly is the state of Florida doesn't have uh a state income tax and uh mm. it's for city, I mean, for a state of that size and complexity and population to have uh, a constitutional amendment that there can be no state income tax leads to a lot of uh, uh, missed uh, net uh, social net. There's missing social net there. So th when things go wrong, they go really wrong. I think you know we, that's why you see things that uh, where women and children are so often victimized because of the social services net that it would be there in uh, other places. Uh, is not the same there. That's my point of view, but I don't know. Uh, and also, you know, retirees, uh, you know, they, they tend to vote for prisons, not schools, because their kids are somewhere else. Uh, and that sort of creates a race to the bottom uh, in Florida as well. And the humidity. There's so much humidity. And guns, you know. What can you do? So, um, but yeah, I, I, I'll be interested in that, uh, that project by her seems like everybody's got kind of a, uh, a Florida, kick Florida on the way, you know, on the way. Uh, Have you seen Florida Project? Uh, you know, I uh, I did not. I just... That one, I liked it a lot, but it's interesting because it can just as easily, I feel like, take place in Anaheim because uh -huh. it's basically centered around people living in the shadow of Disney. Oh, right, right. So, and, yeah, Orlando yeah. or, or, or uh, Anaheim. Mm-hmm. Well, cool. Well, we should have her back sometime, and uh, we could do a whole thing on Spider-Man. Uh, I I still want to have a, a, a episode where we talk about uh, we have some guests and talk about like comic books that would make great musicals because I think there's only been two. I mean, that's crazy. There's you know you think how many comic book based movies there are, just so many at this point. Mm. Um, not a lot before Superman in '78, but you know some. Uh, but uh, Broadway, really, there's just the two. There's uh, um, 1966, uh, It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman, which actually got great reviews, and they built a stage that looked like a paneled comic book page. So there was like multi-levels, and they were in boxes, and um, and it had kind of a, uh, uh, if you look it up, it, it had kind of an interesting look. A guy named Bob Holiday starred in it and it got fairly good reviews, but didn't last long. It seemed like it was kind of influenced by like Charlie Brown to me. I don't know how, why that is, but just the, 
uh, the the peanuts animated uh, stuff in the '60s seem to kind of be as big an influence on this uh, as the Superman comic books in some ways is me. Um, and then that and Spider Man, that's it. So maybe we can get uh, we can get uh, uh, a critical mass of uh, people and talk about. Uh, what musicals would be really great? I think there's a you know I mean Swamp Thing, I don't know, Haunted Tank, Harley Quinn the musical. Harley Quinn's actually I mean I was being funny, but Harley Quinn's like a real one. I mean yeah, me like an Arkham musical uh, would give you a chance to get like you know each each cell opens and there's a different person doing a, a solo. You know it's it's kind of like <laughs> Chicago, uh, the musical Chicago. You know when you have all the women that, who uh, who are murderers like you know. But if you had Riddler and Joker and Catwoman, like you know, you have all these different, uh, you know, uh, story textures and things like that. I think there's a lot of stuff there. I mean, but it's also difficult to name a musical after a home for the criminally insane. So, you know, sorry, you know, could you say that again? After I say it's hard to name a musical after a home for the criminally insane. There's oh. not a lot of tradition there. There's not a lot of uh, built-in uh, warmth toward. Asylum, so. blazing a new path. You could you, know? you could name it something punny like La Caja. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Is there some sort of supervillain pun on La Caja Falls? Like uh, Bat, Bat Cage? I don't know. Maybe, yeah, uh, yeah. You, Bat Caja Falls. Yeah, or you just call it the Miserables. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or the, the the bat, the cat, the hat, and the fat. Bat on a hot tin roof. Yeah. Oh, that's good. <laughs> that that strikes me as like a community theater production developed and, and conceived by like the local local theater troupe that makes a lot of money and maybe they revive it every year. <laughs> yeah, I think so I can see that. I think uh, I think we're onto something. I think it's bad, and I think it's it's a uh, it's a uh, dangerous idea. So I think we should continue it. I think it's got a lot of potential. Yeah. Excellent. In future episodes, maybe we can we can like bring in more dramatic theory, like what makes a good musical, and and what what superhero properties have similar yeah. conditions that could allow for a lot of fertile cross pollination. Yeah, I mean, like V for Vendetta would be a great musical. That would be a great musical. It'd be like uh, Spring Awakening, you know, mm -hmm. uh, you know, but totally different. Uh, Umbrella Academy would be a great musical, you know. Uh, the Fantastic Four would, because it's a family thing, would be kind of fun. Although I don't know how you do Mr. Fantastic. It sounds like a stretch. All right, I give uh, up. That sound effect came in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, On sorry. that note. I'm sure, I'm sure Julie Taymor could figure it out with some creative puppetry and, yeah. and mythology, maybe. Sure, yeah. I, and the Silver Surfer. I always thought, to me, like the Silver Surfer is like, that's the... It's got such pathos, you know. He's like the, uh, he's a, the most <laughs> melodramatic Marvel character. So he's the Eleanor Rigby of the Marvel universe. <laughs> I've always thought, uh, and I think he was the first appearance of the Silver Surfer and Eleanor Rigby the single. I think they're almost like the same day. They're almost like the same day. Wow. Uh, yeah, that's. And I was thinking of doing a book sometime on that. Like I have all these like interesting like crossovers between pop culture stuff like that. Well, I think it's interesting. <laughs> I shouldn't say it's interesting. That's up to other people. But, uh, 
Yeah. And at the end, you're like, and that's why Paul is dead. Yeah, exactly. The hard <laughs> thing is nothing rhymes with Galactus. You know, mm. That's the hard thing. I don't think anything rhymes with that. So. But, I feel like Galactus would be like uh, the king in uh, Hamilton, where he just comes out and is just the goofiest character. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Always eating. Yeah. Like, I, like, who were the greatest... Wow, that's a whole other thing. I was going to say the greatest pop culture characters, creations who are overeaters. Like, if you think about it, there's a lot of them. Like, it's a, like Pac-Man and... <laughs> and uh, Matter Eater Lad and uh, Wimpy, Wimpy from Popeye, you know, with his hamburgers. Mm. I Jughead. Know, I'm alone with this. Yeah, exactly. Jughead. I mean, it's it's a classic kind of comedic type going yeah. back to, you know, the Roman theater and Commedia dell'arte has Il Datore who just yeah, eats exactly. it, then talks about books and then eats. So. You're definitely more cultured than I am because I was about to say Scooby-Doo. Well, yeah. you guys are more cultured in the modern pop culture. <laughs> I, I went to school for, you know, Shakespeare and dramatic theory and Elizabethan history. So Yeah. Different culture, 400 years apart. Same thing. But if you think about it, like, look, that's a lot. Like Dagwood from Blondie and Jughead and the shark from Jaws. And mm. <laughs> the shark from Jaws? Yeah. Everybody's too much. Uh, it's, it, there's something uniquely American about the zombies. Yeah, that was a that was a it was a new part of the new Lion King. It was like the hyenas need a motive now, because you know this is a gritty 3D live action Lion King. Like, why did the hyenas? Why does why does the Pride Land suddenly turn gray and you know wasted as soon as they take over? Oh, it's because the hyenas overconsume and eat everything in sight. It's like, <laughs> so there you, you can add add hyenas 2.0 to to the list yeah that and buffets hyenas and buffets i mean that's really that's the that's the bane of american uh culture right there does it, harley quinn count because in the new one she's obsessed with the egg sandwich i don't think she's an overeater i think she's a, you know, a picky target eater like she, she yeah. wants eat that but i don't think she wants to just eat it and eat it and eat it and eat it just when the joker and her break up and she's like downing cheese whiz yeah 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 <laughs> that's true that's true but it's, it's, it's slightly different but and she uh, does take too many shots too well that's more of just a problem yeah maybe she's just <laughs> irresponsible i like yeah, i think she's got i think she's got it going on so all right well i think we covered that all right <laughs> this is the most tangential of all our conversations i think <laughs> i think we covered a lot of interesting ground absolutely i feel like it's a telling of the podcast that we started on uh, musicality and then we went into like what's a character that overeats <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> uh, it ends up with jughead and jaws yeah <laughs> awesome. all right guys well we'll see you uh we'll see you guys next week and hope that everybody joins us back here in mindspace we have another great guest mm-hmm. uh, we'll keep a secret but I think uh, the it was spoiler. It was from one of the properties mentioned in this outro. So, sure, we mentioned nine thousand things. <laughs> we mentioned Jughead. Come on. Uh, well, we can tell them the force will be with us. We can say that. The force, yes. Yeah. The force. All right. The force All right. This has been. This thing. has been Jeff Boucher's mind space. Uh, the 
kind of sound off people at the end have been me, Maya, and Garrett. Thank you for listening to us. We love chatting with you during this informal chatty portion of Mindspace, and may the force be with you. See you next time. May your dark stay turned off. (laughs) Thanks.